Hi, friends. It's Anne. Like many of you, I'm a parent. My kids are all grown up now. But if you still have young ones at home, how are you handling it all? Childcare, work, and life is a lot to juggle, especially right now. And sometimes the system seems so broken that we need a new idea. Like a parenting revolution. That's our subject in this episode, so keep listening. Wisconsin Public Radio. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. It's to the best of our knowledge. I'm Ann Strainchamps, and today we're going to be hearing from parents. Brittany, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. If there's one thing the pandemic has laid bare, it's how precarious the lives of most working parents really are. If you could start with saying your name, where you live, just really your story, you know, really what you've been going through. Sure. So, okay. um, My name is Brittany Powell, and me and my husband, Eric, We live in rural Vermont. And we have one child. Our son, Waylon, is almost two. I have a full-time job as a media marketing manager at an arts college here. And then I also work as a part-time adjunct professor of art at a local military college. And my husband works as a craftsman and a metal fabricator for a local build company. So in the beginning, our full-time daycare provider closed for several months and my husband was also laid off. I was all of a sudden sort of working from home, which was a little challenging. My son was not even one yet. He was pretty needy for me while I was here and I was trying to get work done in the house and I was also breastfeeding. It definitely felt pretty hectic. We were also having to continue to pay for the childcare that we weren't using. So it became pretty challenging financially because, you know, childcare in Vermont is about half as much as our mortgages. Our current situation, which has sort of stretched out six plus months, has been that my, my son goes over to his grandparents three days a week. I have him at home two mornings a week, and then I start work around noon, and then I work into the evening. And then my husband comes home, you know, at noon from his job. He starts his job very early in the morning. And then he spends the afternoon with my son. And I think it's easy sometimes to consider that there are solutions to every problem. For some people, there are no real solutions. I mean, I, I interviewed a woman here in Vermont whose husband was military who was deployed at the beginning of the pandemic. And she had a job as a nurse and her childcare provider shut down and she had no choice, but she had to stop working. There was nobody to watch their kids. And if you have a job where you can't have your kid buzzing around while you plug away at a computer, you have to go to a job every day. It's like, what do you do? If you quit your job and then you can't pay your rent, how do you do that and not end up homeless? The thing is, this isn't or shouldn't be news. Working parents, especially moms, have been doing the impossible for what seems like forever. But the pandemic made everything so much worse that now people are finally talking about and even moving toward real change. Something like 
a parenting revolution. Journalist Alyssa Quart has been documenting the lives of working mothers during the pandemic. She's the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And our producer, Shannon Henry Kleiber, also a working mom, got together with her to bring us the ideas and the voices of parents who are struggling today. Alyssa, thanks so much for doing this today. I wanted to start with being real about everything that's going on in our lives today. And I was setting up for this recording and the dog was here and the kids were setting up their Zoom calls and next door they started painting the house. And I was just like, oh my God, there's so much going on. And I just think that the reality of working from home and being a parent, you can't separate them anymore. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's just a lot to try to have a professional life to work full-time. Both my husband and I probably work more than full-time and have our daughter doing every pickup, every drop-off, trying not to use public transportation, you know? So even things like that have become complicated. So tell me how you decided to cover this right now. Were you thinking, I'm seeing this in my own life and what are other people seeing and how can I get their stories out? Absolutely. I was seeing this in my own life. I have a nine-year-old. And everyone I knew has been having these kind of Rube Goldberg-like setups where they were working in the laundry room, one of my friends, working in a closet, having their kid have their virtual schooling near the bathroom Mm -hmm. and having their little kid on their lap while they're doing phone meetings. And for women particularly, it was a real setback. It felt like a lot of the gains of the second and third wave of feminism and just women's labor rights were being turned back because it seemed to me, and the research bears this out, that women were bearing the brunt of this in households. Yeah. You know, in some ways, it's such a universal problem. It's cutting across race and class and geography. But as you say, it's really striking feminism. Yeah. And you can kind of see a lot of the conventions of feminism and women's independence that were kind of attained. Like, you can have a life without a man in it and raise kids. You can have a blended family. All these liberatory personal choices that women were able to make in addition to working outside the home were now being set back. It's like, no, if you're a single mom, you literally have no one to rely on. Or if you're a single woman without kids, you're potentially completely isolated right now. It's been very strange from a feminist perspective, setting it back to this 19th century moment when the beginning of the childcare system was created. It was a fragile system, and it was intended for the poorest, unfortunate women with no choice but to work and who are being punished in some senses, I felt, by a failed system in this country. And now it's happening again. What are parents doing who are really stuck? And can we talk about them a little bit? Like the parents who both parents need to be out of the house for work, the daycare is closed and the school is virtual. And what are they doing? Well, one of the people I reported on, she actually had her young adolescent son caring for her other two children who were seven and nine. And I think you're seeing a lot of that someone was telling me about someone who works at their school, going up to the Bronx from deep Brooklyn, dropping off her kid with her mother, and then going back to school to teach in Brooklyn, and then going back up to the Bronx and picking up her kid, and then going back to Brooklyn. (laughs) So that's the, you're seeing these like absurdist lengths that people are going to, to just get any affordable, accessible daycare that they find safe for their children. Okay. Yes. Just go ahead and start when you're ready with your name. Sounds great to me. So my name is Deja Reed. I currently am located in New Orleans, Louisiana. I have one son. He's two years old at the time right now. I am a single mother. My parents do help out as much as they can as well. But, um... Pretty much is me. So it's been a long rodeo, right? 
Yeah, that's a good description of rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my son daycare ended up closing before we were actually furloughed or sent home from my job. So I had to go a few weeks without pay. Eventually we did, ended up getting furloughed. But when they called me back to work, it was like a lot of schools that were shut down or, you know, you can't go in and tour them. You can't meet the teachers. You can't do this because of COVID and everything, which is like a, you know, that's a struggle because, you know, you want to be able to meet your kid's teacher. You know, you're giving your child to somebody, you're putting your child in somebody's hand and for the just to not be able to meet everybody or even walk around the center to see anything, that was challenging. I did not find nowhere for him to go for a very long time because it's already challenging, right? Finding a daycare that you feel comfortable with leaving your child for 40 plus hours a week, right? Right. What do you think needs to be different? I honestly believe that childcare should be government funded. But if we put more energy in, right, and not just taking it as, oh, we're babysitting from zero to four, but it's like, no, we're understanding that that's truly the age where the children, you know, they learn the most. This is what offset them for the rest of their life. So if we just took into account that zero to four is really where we need to start, not in elementary, right? Not, you know, once they get to kindergarten, but truly starting that and putting most of our energy in the zero to four, you know, I don't think we'll have as much issues once we get to elementary and middle and all these other things. <laughs> you know, like that's just my opinion, but I just truly believe that it would eliminate so many other issues that we have further down the line. Oh, Deja, thank you so much for telling us your story. I really appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's sounding good. So, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> so much that comes from this pandemic, it pulls back these layers that we didn't realize were there or we knew were there and we were ignoring. And we're seeing the brokenness of the childcare, the work, the housing, the the inequity. It would be so easy to get depressed about it. But one thing I really like about your work, Alyssa, is you talk about solutions and you talk about, well, what can we do next? Well, one of the things that interests me is what have other countries done? And everyone points to Scandinavia. But even in the Scandinavian instance, in Sweden, for instance, it was the 60s and 70s Swedish feminists that lobbied for the expansion of childcare. So there was a mass movement. It wasn't just, oh, those Scandinavians with their <laughs> good moral sense and their sense of social democracy. It was women organized to put pressure. And one of the things I've always been startled about, especially since I had a child, is why are people not more organized and upset about this? Why isn't there a parent's lobby like there is for the elderly. Like I was thinking of AARP. It had million dollars in total lobbying expenditures in 2019. And it's part of why we still have some degree of social security. This is part of why the amount of rights that the elderly have have been kept in place. So we need that for parents. Yeah. I love the idea of the parents' revolution. Are there ways people on the ground can create their own parents' revolution? I wrote some about this in my last book and I'm writing a little bit about it in my new book because I think a lot of them are kind of bespoke things like co-parenting where people like are living together in the same house, even though they're not biologically or romantically involved with each other. They're sharing daycare, pooling daycare. I mean, everyone's making fun of the pods now as this bougie tendency, but like, I do think there's something potentially communitarian about I prefer to call them collaborative learning. <laughs> that is one thing. I mean, the other thing is to organize and to send letters to fight for greater funds. I mean, the amount that's needed when I reported this was just startling. The same amount was being given to Delta Airlines as was being given to help out with daycare. And what we really need is something more like $9.6 a month to stabilize it. And longer term, we probably need... 
you know, I don't know, 337 billion. It, it's sort of treating daycare as part of the education system, really, which would totally change how we've thought about parents and children and our national responsibility to ordinary people. Hello, my name is Monica Scott. Um, I have three kids and I have one on the way. Can you tell me Monica's story? Yeah, so Monica, I was very moved by her story. I mean, she is a mom of three in Lakeland, Florida, which had a very high rate of COVID-19 infections. And it had gotten so bad that the seven and nine-year-old were at home with their 14-year-old, and they were, like, not leaving the house sometimes. And it wasn't even a house, it was a motel. It's been pretty tough for me during this pandemic because I have to worry about if my kids are safe going to school. Um, Are they wearing their masks correctly like I'm teaching them at home? Are the teachers properly following protocol and making sure our kids are being safe? It all started when the Boys and Girls Clubs of Polk County, which is the county that Lakeland is in, with that once offered after-school care, they shot, right? So now she's leaving 7.30 in the morning for her job at McDonald's. She's paid $9.25 an hour. And then she goes to sort boxes for Amazon at the airport at 1.30 and then works till 10. To be honest with you, it's not easy parenting on these low wages. Making $15 would definitely help. Proper childcare will also help us during these times of the pandemic. Uh, I worry about my kids all the time, you know. Um, wanting them to be safe and everything. I'm really, I'm constantly praying for them. I'm praying for all the kids. Wow. And how is she handling it? The thing that was kind of moving, and again, I didn't get into this, but she is an activist. She's part of the Fight for 15 campaign to give $15 an hour for people like Monica who work at McDonald's and so forth. And She said that was like the thing that made her happy. It was like the only, (laughs) like one of the only things that gave her hope right now. You know, she's praying and hoping something good is going to happen was how she put it. And her life has been from struggle to struggle. And now it's just a new level. Like her kids, normally they'd go to that ice cream truck and that would be this big joy in their lives and they can't even go without being accompanied by their older son who's not able to do sports anymore because he has to take care of his siblings. His whole adolescence is being kind of deformed and warped. So, I I mean, I just think this is just one little story, but there's just probably millions of people whose kids and whose lives look like this right now. You do phrase it as an opportunity. I know there's some dark places too, but the opportunity and the necessity, I think, of doing something different right now is real. I'm more hopeful in some ways than I was before the pandemic started, just because you're seeing on television, on CNN, people are talking about people's needs in a different kind of way because they've been forced to. And I think maybe one of the things is that people don't really politicize parenting in this country, right? They individualize it. And I think this is one of the obstacles. We need to, in some ways, de-individualize it and say every parent has the same problems. I think the inroads, even though he didn't win, of people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren show that there is the desire amongst a large number of people in this country to have a different kind of relationship to the state, uh, a social reframing, to have a more interdependent sense of what we do for families. So not every family is siloed in their own difficulty. I mean, I feel like that's part of what's been exposed by this whole pandemic. Well, we will keep talking about this, Alyssa. This is an incredible, interesting idea and your insight and your research is really interesting. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. Lovely talking to you.
Alyssa Quart, talking with Shannon Henry Kleiber. Quart is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and she's written four nonfiction books, including Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Maybe it's time we looked beyond our own country, our own culture, for ways to make parenting easier for everyone. So I'm a reporter at NPR, a global health reporter. NPR was doing a story about parenting around the world, and they sent me down to the Yucatan, to a small Maya village. And what I saw completely changed what I thought about what parenting could be. Michaeline Duclef isn't just a reporter. She's also a mom, and at the time she was on assignment in the Yucatan, she was also having toddler trouble. So Rosie had just turned about three, and she had always been a baby that made a lot of noise, crying, screaming. But as she turned into a toddler, she started to do a lot of hitting. She'd have tantrums probably on like a daily basis, and I would try to hold her or pick her up, and then she would just slap me across the face. Ooh. Yeah, it was sometimes in public. And I got to the point where I would pick her up and actually like duck. And and I just, (laughs) I, (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. It was not a good place to be in. To be honest, I didn't think that what I was going to find or learn in this Maya village was going to help me with Rosie at all. But when I got down there, the moms that I talked to and I interviewed, they had this calm confidence about them. They didn't yell. There was no bickering or nagging. The children were very kind and respectful to the parents, to the siblings. It was just a completely different relationship between the parents and the child than what I had with my own mom and what I was having with my daughter. The lost art of raising happy, helpful children and how parents can get their lives back. Next. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio. NPRX. What would it be like to live in a community that really supported parents and children? A community, a whole culture of care. Author and NPR reporter Michaeline Duclef visited Mayan, Inuit, and African families with her own toddler in tow and discovered a way of parenting that makes life easier for everyone. One morning, I was with this mom, Maria Tumborgis. She has five kids. She's my age. She's in her 40s. And we were in her kitchen, and her daughters were on spring break. And the oldest one is 12, and she was sleeping in because they had stayed up and watched a shark movie that night. And she woke up, comes out of the bedroom she shares with her sisters, walks past me and her mom, and starts washing the dishes from breakfast without anyone asking her. I know. (laughs) And I... I was just like, what just happened, right? And I asked her mom, I was like, does she do that often? And Maria wasn't really surprised. She's like, she's 12, and by now she should know what needs to be done. And if she sees it, she does it. Not always, not every day, but often. And then she went on to tell me about a time that she took the youngest daughter to the doctors and Anhala, the 12-year-old, when she got back, had cleaned the whole house. So this seems exceptional, right? For me, it seems exceptional. Mm -hmm. But it actually, anthropologists have been documenting a similar phenomenon in many, many cultures around the world. Well, it seems like one of the big differences is that in the Western culture, we've really constructed two very different worlds. There's kid world and there's parent world. Kids play with kid toys and they play with other kids and they go to school and the adults talk to adults and they read adult books and they go to work. And it seems like, from what you described with the Mayans, the kid and adult cultures were much more interwoven. Absolutely. What I saw, not just with the Maya, but also in Tanzania with 
Hadzabe families is that every time a parent did something, so go collect water, go collect firewood, the parent gave the child a very small piece of the task. So they would hand them a small water bottle to carry. They would say, you know, hold your little brother's hands. You hand the child a dish, go put the dish on the table. So it's these what tiny- What happens if the kid says no and throws the dish on the floor? Oh, <laughs> so I doubt many kids would throw the plate on the ground, but if they, <laughs> but if they did, um, it, it's interesting. What would a Maya mom do? So I'm thinking about this study where they were looking at what happens when a little toddler wants to help, like with the laundry, but doesn't know how. In this instance, the toddler comes over and starts throwing the clothes everywhere. Been there. Yeah, exactly. I would be like, what are you doing? You're making a mess. Go play, right? The mom, interestingly, in this study says, the researcher says, what did you do? How did that make you feel? And she said, well, on one hand, I was upset because they were making a mess. But she said, on the other hand, I was excited that he was interested in the laundry. Hmm. She interpreted it as the toddler trying to help, but not knowing how. Wow. And so then she, she guides him back into being productive and shows him how to be productive. I can imagine parents hearing this and thinking, oh my God, now I have to both do the chores and include the child. I'm never going to get done. It's going to take us three hours to get the laundry done. Yeah. But here's the flip side of it. The mom who's taking extra time with the laundry in the two-year-old is not going to sit down and play with that two-year-old. <laughs> She's not going to take him to birthday parties. She's not going to take him to all these child-centered activities. That laundry mm -hmm. is the entertainment. That laundry is the Saturday afternoon activity. In fact, what she's going to do after they do the laundry is go do something she wants to do or she does with her friends, and then she brings the toddler with them. So actually, in the end, for me, switching to this mode kind of gave me my life back. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true, right? I went from like catering to a two-year-old and a three-year-old, going to kitty museums and birthday parties and all these things that I really didn't want to do, to being like, you know what? We're not going to do those anymore. We're going to do the laundry, and then we're going to go do something that my husband and I would do before we had children. And so I think I describe and explore a way of parenting that is sustainable, that you can do for 10, 12 hours a day and not be exhausted and not have the child be exhausted, if you can imagine. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. Do you think the parents you met had different goals than the parents in this country? Because I was thinking... All parents want their kids to be happy, but we might define happiness very differently. In our culture, we're awfully focused on success as a path to happiness. That is a really, really good question. I think that the answer is absolutely yes. I think, and several researchers have told me this, that we are so focused on individualistic accomplishments where kids are taught to figure out what they want and what they can do and then go get it. And I think a lot of parents around the world want more. They want their child to also learn to work together and do things as a family and as a team. And that's where you build this like cooperation and you build this accommodito, this, this wanting to help the family. That's the name for it, accommodito? Be accommodating? It means directly accommodating, but it's more complex. It's like this skill of being able to pay attention to what's around you and see when a person needs help and then go and do it. And, and I have to say something else. All of these places, parents aren't isolated in a nuclear family. The way we've constructed a nuclear family, we've really taken something that was supposed to be done by five or six people and said, okay, now you two people do it. Or you one and a half person, right? Because somebody's working. And so I think that that makes it so much harder and why we're, we're all so tired. It sounds to me like what you're describing are cultures that really center parenting and children and families in a way that's deeper and more meaningful. And the irony is that we think we do in this culture, right? Because <laughs> we have yes. such high standards for parents and for children. Our children are being raised so enriched, you know, if you're <laughs> right. middle class or upper middle class. But it seems like somehow, actually, our children are impoverished and parents are impoverished in other ways. 
I absolutely. In fact, one of the psychologists who studies Maya children and learning in Maya culture said this exact thing to me. She said, we think the child has this very rich upbringing, but actually it's very impoverished because it is missing the adult world. It is missing the real experiences. I think she has a point. What does a kid need? Do they need an extra toy or an extra play date? Or do they need to just be with their parents while they're making dinner? Wow. This was so inspiring. Thank you so, so much. I wish my kids were still small so I could start all over again. Thank you so much. It's been quite a pleasure. That's NPR science reporter Michaeline Duclef, author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. In 1866, Melinda Russell, a widow with a disabled son, became the first African-American woman to publish a cookbook. A century and a half later, her recipes inspired Shireen Sherrard's new poetry collection, A Meditation on Black Motherhood. Marble cake. The white. My son, half cup white flour, quarter cup brown sugar, has trouble with fractions. When pregnant, I did not follow instructions. Beat the yolks and sugar together until very light. It was months before I accepted I was carrying another human being. Add half pound butter, whip 14 egg whites, flavor with lemon, half gill brandy. The dark. The ophthalmologist suspects that he's colorblind. Half cut molasses, the yolks of eight eggs. Perhaps that is why he prefers brown sugar in his oatmeal. He can't tell how it's different from white. Flavor with cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, or mace. I confess, I palmed the iron pills, drank light roast brews without sugar or cream. Mixed children usually come out beautifully. The doctor is unsure about mine. Paper and butter the pan, first a layer of the white, then of the dark. Alternately, finishing with the white. Coming up, we'll stop by the house where Shireen Sherrard writes, bakes, and raises two sons, together with her husband and fellow poet, Ahmad Johnson. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio and PRX. Shireen Sherrard and Ahmad Johnson and their two boys live just a few blocks away from Steve and me. It's a good neighborhood to raise a family in. Dog-friendly, family-oriented, a university town. Like us, Shireen and Ahmad share a profession. They're both poets— Each recently came out with a new book. Shireen's is called Grimoire, and Ahmad's is Imperial Liquor. And although they honestly didn't plan it this way, both are about parenting, specifically about their inner lives as black parents, raising black sons in a neighborhood and a country in which racial inequity and injustice are everywhere, no matter how good the schools are or how nice the neighbors seem. It was a sunny day when Steve sat down with Shireen and Ahmad on their back deck. The weather was warm, and the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial was still news. Can I just say, it's pretty remarkable that you both have these books coming out, both about parenting to a large degree. 
Mm-hmm. One from the perspective of a mother, the other from a father. Yeah. Is that just coincidence? It is coincidence. Like, it's one of those funny <laughs> things, I think, like, we, we didn't really talk about what was going on in these books, but it's pretty clear that something was in the water. I didn't plan to write about fatherhood or my children at all. I was thinking a lot about race and the history of racism in this country. And trying to write personal poems, I kept returning to my role as a father and witnessing my sons move through these institutions and ultimately be treated in ways that seem inconsistent with how we raise them, you know, how we see them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is such a difficult time for young people in particular, for all of us, but I think especially for young people, I mean, given the pandemic, given the kind of systemic racism that's been very noticeable, probably in ways that this country hasn't really seen for decades. And you are raising two black teenagers, black sons. Mm -hmm. I assume this has been a challenging time for you as parents? Mm -hmm. It has. I mean, just two days ago, Aman and I sat down with our youngest son between us to watch the verdict in the George Floyd case. And because we've seen history come around a few times, I think both of us were probably cynical about what the outcome of that would be. But part of me was hoping because I knew that my son was hoping and still expecting justice, right? And expecting accountability. And I think my anxiety was about his reaction more so than what the actual outcome of the case was going to be because of the message that it sends to children that their lives are not of equal value. If you don't mind my asking, how did your son react to the verdict? He was happy. You know, I think if what I experienced was relief, I think he felt like this was the right thing. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your sons? You have two sons. How old are they? Well, 17, almost 18, and then 14. So not that far apart in age, but there's a profound distance, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in those years. Personalities are very different, I think. The youngest is interested in creative writing. He's reading poetry and meditating, like he's kind of, uh, you know, dreamy. The oldest is kind of high energy. can be very chatty, but then also, because he's an older teen, definitely has his mood swings. So I think personalities, like, we're very different, so they take after us in certain ways. So it's really interesting to see who takes after whom here. The oldest takes after me. <laughs> I, it, yeah, it's one of those things you, you see that you know this is yes, this is what you this is what you've gotten from your mother, you know, for better or for worse. So, from a parent's perspective, and this is an unfair question, but what's your guess as to how your two sons might remember this very peculiar moment in history right now? Do you have any sense of how this might shape them in their lives to come? Well, I, I left Los Angeles in the fall of 1992, just after the L.A. rebellion connected to the Rodney King verdict. And I think a lot about this. When my father was a teenager, he lived through the Watts riots in 65. Um, wow. I mean, this is three generations of living through some remarkably similar circumstances. It is. So to think about, you know, 15, 20, 30-year swing generations of African-American families, this is sadly a common recurrence, you know, kind of rite of passage, if you will. What feels a little different, I think, is the multiracial nature of the protest. The outcome of the King verdict was very bifurcated. You could almost see the opinions, right, based on race. And the same was true around other trials of the century, the OJ trial, for instance. But I think this is a scenario where there was just an outcry across the board. And when you looked at the people who were coming out into the streets, whether it's in Madison or throughout the world, you really did see people of all walks of life. And that felt different. I think that made a, a mark, I think, even thinking about our children, seeing that, oh, it's not just Black people here. The question is whether... 
this window will affect lasting change, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I feel like the baby steps in the direction of justice should be celebrated. You mentioned that the violence that erupted after the Rodney King verdict in L.A. was, that was a formative experience for you growing up in L.A. as a teenager. How do you think that shaped you? Well, so the last time there was some conversation that took place around the idea of the Insurrection Act, that technically like martial law was declared on my neighborhood. You know, I had to show an ID to get past like armored vehicles to get home. Um, This was in Compton? This was in Compton. You know, whole city blocks were burned to the ground. There was no development for 20 years after that. They just remained kind of empty lots. The months that followed that riot, you know, the grocery stores were closed, the gas stations were closed. There was a militarized presence for an extended period after that, even long after the curfews ended. And what's complicated, too, is there were these calls for police reform. But then maybe a year or so after that, the crime bill was passed. And we began to see that narrative of mass incarceration that devastated the community that I grew up in. It makes me wonder if you think your two sons are maybe more hopeful about the future than you two are. I think they are. They're definitely engaged in what's going on. You know, I would say, sometimes I would have to say, please step away from CNN, (laughs) you know, please. (laughs) You know, but I realize that they see this as an urgent, these are urgent things affecting their lives and they're looking for those answers. I mean, I think the, probably the best part of the virtual homeschooling has been watching our younger son just read the autobiography of Malcolm X, Mm seeking out literature on the Black Panther Party. He's looking for what are revolutionary alternatives, right? What have people written about? And he's sharing those in class, even if it's via the chat function. So I want to bring this conversation a little closer to home here, because I live just a few blocks from where we're sitting right now in Mm -hmm. your backyard here in Madison, Wisconsin. And I had two kids also who were raised in this neighborhood. And, you know, there were certainly times when I kind of would worry a little bit about what they were up to, but my kids are white. And I knew that for them, this was a safe neighborhood. You have two black teenagers, black sons. I'm assuming that's a very different set of concerns that you would have. Well, I I shouldn't, I should just ask for living in this neighborhood and living in this city in Madison, Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. Certainly, you know, it's... um something especially as they've grown into men. And we know that Black children are often thought to be older than they are, read as older than they are. So 13 to an outsider perspective, even to a police officer, does not read as a child when that child is Black. So those are conversations that we had to have. I I guess once I remember saying to my oldest son, you know, you have to remember that you were the red car right? Everyone else can be speeding, but you are the car that will be pulled over. So you need to make sure that you are not speeding. I remember there was this tradition at West when he started as a freshman where the underclassmen would run and then they would be chased Oh, I remember that. Yeah, our, our kids did that too. And yeah. yeah, I was trying to remember what the name of it was because he, I remember as a freshman him coming home and saying, oh, there's this really fun tradition that I want to participate in. And then it was described to me. And it just spoke to a kind of privilege that there would be a tradition here where children ran through people's backyards while others pursued them in cars. That is not something that a Black child can do, (laughs) right? At night, and did you, I was, did you tell your sons they couldn't do this? Absolutely. I was astonished. And I remember, you know, of course, here I seem like the mean mother. And then I had a friend of mine who's also a mother of a black child write me and say, thank you for not making me the only mother who said, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> so those are just examples, you know, or even things like one of my sons 
makes quite a living taking care of people's pets in the summer. And I have to say to them, can you please let your neighbors know that you have arranged for a six foot two, (laughs) (laughs) at the time maybe taller, um, African-American young man who is in this neighborhood to look after your pets. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, that might be an uncomfortable conversation for you to have, but I need you to have it. Otherwise, it's not going to be safe for him to go fiddle with someone's back door. With someone's back door. Sure. Yeah. Well, late As, afternoon, early evening yeah. to feed a cat. Yeah. How have your sons reacted to those conversations? You know, I think before the events of last summer and the last few years, they would kind of brush them off as if we were just like nervous Nellies, like parents just, you know, overreacting. We definitely experienced some pushback from them. That's not true now, you know, so I think now mm-hmm. they're thinking back to some of the small conversations we had when they were very young. It's like, when do you talk to your children about sex? When do you talk to your children about racial profiling? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then at some point you teach them how to manage money, right? Like, what is the, <laughs> you know, what's the, the order kind of, of those conversations? Right? Yeah. yeah, well, I think childhood is really about learning how to make mistakes. And I think for our generation, the parents around us, you know, we were the helicopter parents. A friend of mine, she said, yeah, it's Black Hawk Down over at your house. Like, that's how helicopter we are, right? And those mistakes are important to make their learning. But for children of color, there's not a lot of quarter to make mistakes. And I think that's what's really hard. They need to learn from those mistakes, but there's a sense that they're not given the benefit of the doubt. Ahmad, you have a poem. You have actually several poems that touch on this subject, but one I'd love to have you read. It's called Don't Forget Your Lunch. Of course. Don't forget your lunch. My dear son, it won't matter how friendly you are or honest or which Ivy League school you've attended. It won't matter whether you hold the door, shop with your hands out of your pockets, or say thank you after giving the cashier most of your money, or saying to the local barista or waiter, fine, and how are you? It won't matter if your lawn is cut, or the hedges, or whether the paint along your garage door begins to weather, whether the car is dented or carries a few seasons of wax, whether you signal or roll through a four-way intersection, whether you roll down all the windows or spread your fingers against the steering wheel or against the dash, the way you might trace your palm for yet another Thanksgiving construction paper turkey. There are children and there are no children. I think I failed to teach you how to protect your heart. Every decade now, I grow more quiet like sound is folding itself and cutting dark shapes into corners of my throat. Sound being tumbled down to fit into some undersized box. And I feel angrier. And maybe it's the money or that how I dress never seemed to matter. The first time a police officer put a gun to my head, the night was as still and musty and oily as your body is now. I lost count, but who counts? Curbs and hoods and concrete and sky. You know your mother collected all your baby teeth in a tea tin from England. Some nights I'm sweating and the stars start rattling in my head. Wow. One line, there are several lines that really jumped out at me, but one was given all that you've both just talked about in terms of how to protect, how to keep your kids safe. Also, how to protect their hearts. How do you encourage them to love, I guess? I think that that's where history is helpful. Family history, cultural history, going back to 1619, you know, a lot of things have happened to us as a people, and we're still here, right? And we're here because people chose 
to try and anticipate a better life. Many people sacrificed for that. And there's a strength that you can draw from that. And you really do have the example of your ancestors to inspire you. So it's a challenge for us definitely as parents, but I think we also try to do everything we can to really model that beauty, what self-care is, how we try to demonstrate love as a couple uh, Mm -hmm. so they know, you know, like they're supported and they're a product of something that we believe is pretty special. Do they read your poems? I think they they overhear us like when we do the readings now because everything is like happening at home like we have we have zoom readings and they're kind of at the door Mm -hmm. um they may pick our books up i mean we don't say hey like read this so you know what we really think of you uh that doesn't really like kind of come up um i think we're in awe of who they are as individuals and we're also trying to process like what our role has been in shaping them i used to think that you know, I just woke up one day and these two dudes were living in my house. It's like, well, <laughs> where did you come from? And how did you get here? You know, But obviously we love them and appreciate who they are as individuals. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. This wow. has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this is lovely. Thank you. It was Steve Paulson talking with poets Ahmad Johnson and Shireen Sherrard on their back deck in Madison, Wisconsin. Ahmad's new book is called Imperial Liquor, and Shireen's is Grimoire. And that's it for this hour. Thanks to Alyssa Quart and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project for their help. To the best of our knowledge comes to you from Madison, Wisconsin. Shannon Henry Kleiber put this episode together with help from Mark Rickers, Charles Monroe Kane, and Angelo Bautista. Sound design and engineering by Joe Hartke. Steve Paulson is our executive producer, and I'm Ann Strainchamps. And for a behind-the-scenes look at our show, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at ttbook.org newsletter. Thanks for listening.